Uh, Pastor Greg obviously is not here tonight. He uh, and it was really not necessarily out of uh, the fact that he's that, all that ill, although he's he does have some chills and fever. But he just didn't. He wasn't sure how he'd feel, and he didn't want to spread it. And so, out of courtesy, he called and and we talked a little bit. And I said, I'd be more than happy to teach. I absolutely love teaching, and I love where we are. And you know, you never know when you get into a passage where it's going to go. You don't know what the narrative is, but when you get into it and you study it, it just, the Holy Spirit illuminates the text. It's wonderful. And there's always something good to, and, and rich to get out of it. You know, I, I often, people say, well, you know, I, I told someone I was you know, teaching tonight. They're like, well, where are you? I said, second Kings, you know, chapter seven. They're like, why? You know, what's, what's the, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because even through this narrative, that took place thousands and thousands of years ago, we see God's character, we see God's hand of provision, we see God's mercy, we see God's justice and judgment, all the things that when you're praying to God tonight as you go to sleep and tomorrow when you wake up and you say a prayer, it's the same God, amen? It's the same God that we're talking about tonight is the one that you're going to speak with on the way home maybe, or speak with as you lay your head on the pillow tonight. And when you wake up in the morning and, and read the Word of God and, and have your devotion, it's the same God that you're talking to, that we're going to learn about Him tonight and what He's done. And I just think that's fascinating that that's our God. This is what we're going to read about tonight is our God and what He did. We speak to Him today, and that just is exciting to me, right? So uh, again, I want to welcome everybody. Um, I, I just want to give you a brief introduction to the chapter before I even tell you where we are. Um, it's a very unique narrative. Um, basically, Samaria is under siege by the, by the Syrians, and God provides miraculously for Samaria. And, uh, it, but there's a very unique, and Elisha's in on this thing, as, and there's prophecy, and some things are fulfilled, and God uses very interesting people, but it's a wonderful narrative. And again, you don't know quite what you're going to get into until you start studying it, and that's what I love to do. So that's where we're. I'm, I'm going to tell you where we're, we're going to start a little bit earlier than that, but um, as far as where we're going to be. But let's go ahead and pray, and uh, pray that the Lord will speak to us tonight through His Word. Father God, we um, we thank you for bringing uh, everyone out tonight that has come out. We know the time change throws people off a bit. We know people are uh, have are sick and ill uh, sometimes, and we. Lord, we just understand why they can't be here, and Lord, but we're so pleased that they can watch online, Lord, and join us, Lord. Father, we ask that as we uh, look into your word tonight, and as you speak to us through your word, that Holy Spirit will illuminate this text for us, that you will speak to us individually and corporately, Father, that we learn, as we learn the truths about you, and we learn to understand your character and your nature, Father, and we thank you for this day, and we, we just, uh, again, ask that you would be with us tonight as we study your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, if you will, if you could go ahead and turn to 2 Kings, is where we're going to land tonight. But what I'd like to do is just do a brief recap of what occurred at the end of chapter 6, because it really sets up for what happens in, in chapter 7. Okay? So, if you want to look back at 6, chapter, so it's 2 Kings, Chapter 6, 
and we're going to look at starting in verse 24. And we're going to kind of fly through this because it's just a very uh, simplistic thing that we can kind of knock out quickly. But it, but I want you to get a, you know, it's like it's like you know when you see the sitcoms on television, or at least I know they used to when you watch a sitcom, and and it would say previously on, and then it would kind of show what happened the the, the week before. That's when you couldn't binge and watch everything all at once. You had to wait a whole week to watch a show, and it would say previously on. So that's kind of what we're doing now. Previously on in chapter 6, what was going on, because it leads right into 7. So let's look at verse 24, just to give you a, an understanding of what was going on. And if you weren't here last week, this will be a great opportunity for you to, 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 you to get the whole picture. So basically, and I'm not going to go verse by verse, but basically, if you look at verse 25, it says, And there was a great famine in Samaria. Samaria was in Israel. And if you look up a bread above that, it says, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, he mustered his entire army and besieged Samaria. That's why they were in a major, major famine, uh, because they, were, they, were, they had been taken advantage of. So they besieged it, and then, ironically, it says here, until uh, a, a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver, which is an exorbitant amount. Donkey's heads also being unkosher. I'm not even sure why they were eating that, but as we move on through this text, you'll see that they were eating all kinds of things. And then it says, uh, then it says, um, and it says, then a fourth part, this is continuing on in 25, of cob, or of dugs, dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now that, that, that sounds disgusting. What it really was, most scholars say that it was sort of like a carob pod seed. It was like a, that was called that. It was, a, it was something that was not really dove's dung, but it was like a pod of some kind of seed that was used for some kind of seasoning or, or something edible. But it was, it was, it was like buying uh, perhaps uh, some lima beans for, you know, six, 60 to $80 for a can of lima beans. So things were through the roof. People were eating whatever they could, basically. But here's the interesting thing down here. As we get into this, this is the gross part. But look down in, in, in verse 28. And, and Greg covered this last week, but I want to just kind of, kind of rehash it a bit. Um, now, let's go up to 26. And now, the king of Israel, who was Jehoram, he was, um, he was passing by on a wall, and a woman cried out to him. Again, we're in 26. Saying, help, my lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor of, or the wine press, or from the wine press. And the king asked her, What is your trouble? Now, this is just gross. She says, She answered, This woman, pointing at another woman, said to me, Give, give your son that we may eat him today. You read that right, right? He's, this, is, this is cannibalism, right? And Pastor Greg talked last week about the verses in Deuteronomy that talked about this. Uh, and we will, so she said, Give me your son that we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. This is how, it, listen, this is how thick and indifferent the people were, what was going on in this, in this era. Um, in fact, they weren't really bothered about the fact that they were eating children. They were bothered about the logistics of who was going to eat who and when. Is that just awful, right? And so, so, and this all sets up the attitude of the king, so it says, continues on in verse 29. It says, so we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said, remember, though, this is one part where you want to go, narrative is not normative, right? So just because it says something in the Bible doesn't mean, a lot of people say, well, 
You believe the Bible. What, is, what about when you look in Leviticus and it says you're not allowed to wear you know, things that touch each other, two different fabrics, and they try to catch you in things, and they don't have an understanding that there were laws of custom, there were moral laws, there were separate laws, for, some for the time and the people. But this is, a, a, this is just a narrative here. It's not a normative. This is not something we're going to be going by. But it's just, uh, it just explains and it sets up the situation, how desperate they were. So we boiled my son and ate him. Verse 29, and on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Oh, bother, right? When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes out of desperation, basically. Now he was passing by on the wall. And the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. So he was in a time of mourning. These were desperate times. And they called for desperate measures. So this is all setting up for this, what we're going to come into in, in chapter 7. And here's what he said. Listen to this. And this is, this is King Jehoram. And he said, May God do so to, to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulder today. So he's basically so frustrated that his political endeavors can't fix this problem that he says, give me the head of Elisha. I want his head because he, this is obviously of the Lord and I can't fix this and he, he's not fixing this. So he's wanting the, the head of his prophet, right? So verse 32, Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, now here's the part where the Lord has already told the prophet Elisha what's going to happen. Uh, so Elisha says, do you see how this murderer, referring to the king, has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is it not the sound of his master's feet behind him? In other words, yes, there's a henchman coming to kill me, but we know that the king is behind this. And he's likely close by and he's going to hear something, right? And so, uh, so Elisha kind of had the heads up on this. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? This was a sense of hopelessness from the king through the messenger. So at this point, um, Jehoram the king uh, sees his nation or his, his, his region of Samaria completely destitute, destroyed by the Syrian army, where they're eating things that are unkosher, they're paying ungodly amounts for, this, for these things. People are eating children, and they're just trying to survive. And he's absolutely frustrated as, as a ruler. So that just kind of sets up what's going to happen next. So let's go ahead. But before, before I start that, I, I do like to say um, kind of what we're watching for in this. Okay, so as we go through this passage, this narrative, there's three points as I studied this, and I, I leaned a little heavily on, on a certain commentary that was really strong in this particular area, and there's three major things that I want you to watch for. So if you're taking notes, I'd like you to write these things down. These are things that we're going to see in this narrative in chapter 7 that, are, that I think are very applicable that you can take home with you. The first one is the necessity of trusting God's promises. So the first thing we're going to look for in this passage is the necessity. I can never spell that right, but it's N-E-C-E-S-S-I-T-Y. It's one of those words I have trouble with. 
of trusting God's promises. The second one that we're going to see in here, this, this text, is God often uses the lowly. God often uses the lowly. And as we go through this, we'll, we'll observe these things. The third sort of application or perhaps takeaway in this passage is going to be God is always true to His Word. So number one, the necessity of trusting God's uh, promises. Number two, God often uses the lowly. And number three, God is always true to His Word. Everybody got that? All right, let's go ahead and begin. And what I want to do is I, I love verse-by-verse verse teaching, going through, and, and I may pause at something, and some of you might be going ahead and re going through this passage on your own. Some of you may have already read it. Some of you are just kind of like blank slate. You're just coming into it just to, here we go, let's, let's get into this thing. And, but I like to kind of go verse-by-verse because verse, there's certain things of note that I'll stop and talk about. But as we go through this, Watch for these three things that I just talked about because we're going to see a couple of these very quickly. So let's go to verse, let's start in verse one. Here's the part where it says, but, right? So because there's a question just above it there in chapter six, uh, why should I wait for the, for the Lord any longer? So here's Elisha. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. You know, it's interesting that he says, hear the word of the Lord. And then he says, thus says the Lord. There's a, almost a double emphasis here that's, that's going out. So 7 verse 1, thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Okay, let's stop right there. This was the first prophecy. There's two prophecies that occur by Elisha in this first, basically this first or second verse here. So the first prophecy is basically he's saying things are crazy right now, but thus saith the Lord. In fact, did he actually give a time? He said tomorrow, tomorrow about this time. That's 24 hours, right? So this is a very quick, how are you going to take and go from this to completely, and, and the prices here basically are almost back down to normal, if not better than normal for flour and barley and those types of things. So the first prophecy comes from Elisha, and he's, he's saying this is going to happen tomorrow, right? Then, and here's the interesting part, then the captain on whose hand the king, that would be King Jehoram, leaned on, said to the man of God. Now this is the captain who the, the, the king really, his, his right-hand man. He said, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? What a sarcastic, unbelievable comment. He's basically saying, really? You're the, this God that has kept us in this, you know, all of this, these trials and troubles, he's really going to, by tomorrow, make the inflation that we have? You're, you're going to take gas down to 56 cents tomorrow? I don't think so, right? But that's kind of the, the same thing. And, you, you, and, and bread's going to be, you know, 22 cents tomorrow? Right, I don't think so. So, so basically you have a, a, a captain that's really doubting here. Not even the king, the captain. The, uh, so he says, um, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But, now he, here's the he part, if you continue, but he, which is Elisha, he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. 
there's the second prophecy, right? So in this chapter, we're doing two prophecies. One is that prices are going to drop and plummet in one day. The second thing is, uh, since you're doubting what the Lord said in this, in what I just told you, He said, you will see it, but you're not going to be able to partake of it. And we're going to see that later on in this chapter, pretty in an extreme manner. So that's the first thing. The first point uh, that we that we kind of want to draw out of this before we get to even verse three is that this is the part where, when I say application, sometimes things are pretty obvious in, in a text, and sometimes they're a little hidden. We never want to pull something out that's not there. But I think it's very evident in this first two verses that we must always trust the word of the Lord. Now, do we have the word of the Lord today? How do we have the word of the Lord? In the Bible, right? Right? And sometimes people can, can uh, you know, I know there's people that say they're hearing from God or they, they want to speak the, the word of the Lord. And we have to be very careful with that because that could happen. And, and sometimes people are prompted to say something to you or I felt the Holy Spirit led me to this passage. that I, And, and that, that could very well be. I'm not going to deny that, but we know for a fact that 100% of the time when we're reading the Word of God, it is the Lord speaking to us, right? Am I right? So I think the first takeaway in this is that we see here is that we must never doubt what the Word of the Lord says, right? Because the minute that occurred here, we know what happened, that there was actually a curse basically from Elisha through God on this man for not believing. Now, it seemed a little crazy at the time, but some things that the Lord said all throughout Scripture did seem a little crazy, you know. Um, in fact, you know, think about this time of year where when Mary was approached by an angel, that seems a little little wacky, a little out there, you know. So there are things. Um, so I would ask you this. Are there, are there times where you might doubt what the Lord has said? or even not necessarily doubt. And unfortunately, we're under grace. We're not living under the old covenant. So I don't think we're going to be struck dead or kept from things. But I think we all experience doubt at times. We all kind of wonder, you know, when we're praying, like, is this really a real thing who I'm praying to? And, and we all struggle with those. I mean, C.S. Lewis did, you know, uh, you know many theologians did. So that's not, a, that's not an abnormal thing for a Christian. But I'd like to just run a couple verses by you and ask you, if you truly trust what the Lord says. And so these things just kind of pop to my attention. You don't have to look them up. You can write them down if you'd like, but I'm just going to ask you these. In regards to your salvation, do you believe that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you'll be saved? Do you believe that? Do you trust that? We must. We have to because that's a promise of the Lord. The security of our salvation, right? Um, in John 10, verses 28 and 29, Jesus is speaking of his sheep. Those are those who the Lord has given him. That's us, the, the people that are, that, that are believers. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? And then he goes on to say, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. He is sovereign over everything, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. That's a double bond of our salvation. Do you trust and believe that? 
These are things that as we go through scriptures, we want to make sure that we fully affirm these things. The last one is forgiveness. As a believer, do you believe it? When, 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 the, when, the, when the Lord says, if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we need to make sure that we truly understand and believe those things and trust in the Lord when He says these. These are promises of the Lord. The Bible is covered. There's thousands and thousands. I went to the Psalms and I could just read the Psalms over and over and over again. Every single passage was something that we must trust in and believe in because we're commanded to and we need to as believers. Anything the Lord says, we must trust in. Someone here in this passage didn't believe. He didn't trust. In fact, he kind of laughed and there was judgment on him. So I just ask you, you know, when I look at this, I try like, well, what's the application here? And the application is really make sure that the things that we're seeing in Scripture, which is the Lord speaking to us, truly, we truly believe and trust in them. Sometimes it's hard, you know, but do you know that, that we're not to be anxious? The Lord says, don't be anxious. But, you know, but when, you, when we are anxious, like submit our request to Him with thanksgiving and, and, and He'll guard our heart and minds. I talked about that at communion a few weeks back. Like He will do that. And we really have to rely on that and trust that. And that's where that faith and trust comes in. So I think it's very important. So that's the first kind of thing that we see in this passage is that um, it, the necessity of really trusting God's promises. And those are God's promises. So let's go ahead and, and continue to move on in the, uh, in the chapter here. And we immediately come upon the next point. But I'm going to go ahead and read just the first verse 3. It says, now there were, this is chapter 7, verse 3. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate. Let me just stop right there. Why were they at the entrance of the gate? Because they weren't allowed in. They're unclean. They were, they were out past I-95, out there in a little camp somewhere, you know, and they were not allowed in the gates because, you know, I, maybe they thought they were contagious, which they, I think it was, um, they were just unclean. They were not allowed to be anywhere. So these were lepers living outside. These are lepers. They're the very low on the, on the totem pole in society. They were castaways, cast outs. Okay, so they're out there, which brings us to the second point, really. And this is something that one of the commentaries I looked at, in fact, several of them, really kind of honed in on. And when several commentaries and trusted theologians kind of align on one thing, you can be sure that there's something there. And so this is a part where God uses the lowly, right? So God's going to do a miracle. But as we go through this passage, you'll see that these outsiders, these unclean, will be the ones that will herald, that will herald and announce what the Lord did. And so God uses the lowest of the low to actually be a part of his plan for, for delivering the, the Samaria. So I think it's exciting. It's neat. Um, so let's kind of move on. This is kind of a funny part. And I like to go into narratives that are that kind of I get a kick out of. So here's these guys. They have nothing to lose. You know, they might even be likened to, uh, you know, God bless them, the, the, the destitute homeless that you've noticed sometimes they're very um, uh, forward in asking for things sometimes or they're very. And so these, these guys have really nothing to lose nothing to gain, and so, well, everything to gain, actually, but nothing to lose. So here's what they say. Imagine this conversation. They say, 
they said to one another, this is picking up in, it's again in, in verse 3, why are we sitting here until we die? You can just see them sitting around kind of going, hey, what, do you, what, do you, what are we doing here? And they say, if we say, let's enter the city, the famine in the, is in the city, and we shall die there. So what's the point of going into the city, right? And then they say, if we sit here, we're going to die also. What's the point of that? We have nothing to lose in this next proposition. They go, then they said, so come now. So now come. He goes, they said, let us go over to the camps of the Syrians. Now that's almost crazy, but, here's, but they had nothing to lose. They were destitute. They were the lowest of the low. And he says, if they spare our lives, we'll live. This is a 50-50 shot here. <laughs> and if they kill us, we'll die. What, what, what else, what, where else are we going to go? So they arose. Now, I want you to notice this. This is at twilight. This is just before the sun's coming up. This is still probably a little dark. So they rose up and they, at twilight, and they go to the, and they, to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. These are, remember, this is a massive encampment around the city that these are people that have been destroying and, see, and putting the Samaria under siege. I see you all reading ahead. Pay attention here. So, <laughs> so, so this is crazy. In other words, like they almost thought, you know, something happened. So let's just continue reading. I love this. Here's what happened. You ever see the show Monk? Anybody ever watch the show Monk? Right? A couple people? Yeah. So it's about a guy. He's a detective. Brilliant. Has quite a bit of OCD. But at the very end of it, he, he solves everything and he goes, here's what happened. And he kind of does a recap of exactly what happened because he knows what happened. Great show. Look it up. It's a good, clean show. Funny. So, so, but here's what happened. For the Lord had made an army, excuse me, for the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. That was the miracle. So that they said to one another, this is the army, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. Okay, let's kind of pause right there. So that is basically the Lord allowing these Syrians to make it seem like they're hearing from all sides the largest armies possible coming to destroy them. It would have to have been an amazing feat for that to occur, uh, because for them to do what they did, and it's going to continue on there, honestly, it would, I'd love to have seen this, but all right, let's, let's continue on. I love this, this part here. It says, so, um, it says, so they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. So there's the miracle. Who knows about the miracle right now? The lepers, only the lepers at this point, right? Now, when it said fled for their lives, it's funny because, um, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I, want, I do want to say that when they fled, it's, if you can want to underline fled for their lives, they went so fast. They took off so quick, and you'll see it later on in the narrative, that they literally left a trail of, of clothing, armor, whatever they were carrying, they and they ran as fast as they could. That's how terrified they were. 
And it's interesting because um, there's a verse, there's a, in, chap, in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about us as believers running the race. What is running the race? What does that mean? Anybody? Living our lives. Sanctification, right? It says to run the race, to, to, and it says to drop off any encumbrance to keep us from running well. And that's exactly what this, I can picture it. This is what these guys did. They were throwing off everything, letting go of everything they possibly could to run as fast as they could away from these, this army that they heard. So it's just an interesting picture that kind of parallels in a little bit with how we're supposed to run our race. So we know that we're supposed to lay off, you know, anything that we have that weighs us down in our spiritual walk. Well, this is kind of what they did, but in mass exodus. And they threw off everything because it says, in fact, let's, do, let's just jump down real quickly to verse, four, to verse 15. We're going to come back up, but let's go to 15. So they, they being the scouts that went out, went down as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered, littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste, right? So you picture that, the Syrian army, hearing what seems to be a massive uh, you know, onslaught from, from, from these armies, they take off as fast as they can, leaving a trail of everything. They didn't have time to probably put out their fires. Okay, so back up to, um, to verse 7. So they fled away, horses, and you know how they fled for their lives. Look at verse 8 there. So this is, we're back to the, the lepers. So, and then when the lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. Well, they were starving. There was famine. They came into it, I mean, a massive encampment. Pick, I, mean, I don't know really. I didn't do enough research to know exactly how big this encampment might be. But maybe if you pictured like the entire you know, fairgrounds out west of town, you know, within more property, massive tents set up, all the animals, all the food, all the, all that they had was, there was no one there. It's like, like the mall looks, you know, completely gone. Like no one's there, right? Like, like, like everyone, so they get to this place, there's no one there, but everything else is there. All the food, all this. So they gorged themselves. They were hungry, right? Isn't this a fun narrative? So, so here's what they did. So they went to the edge of camp. Back, let's pick it up in verse eight. And they ate and they drank, and they carried off silver and gold. These are lepers. I'm not sure what they're going to do with it. And clothing, and went and hid them. Pretty sneaky. Pretty smart. Then they came back and entered another tent, and went and carried off things from it. So they're just like now they're just pillagers. They're just going in and just taking all they can, and then they went and hid them. Now, here's where there's not really a, a lesson here, but it's very interesting to see this, that they kind of came to their senses. And this isn't necessarily for fear of man. This isn't for fear of the, you know, what people would do to them. They had nothing, excuse me, they had nothing to lose. They were actually in fear of the Lord in this. They, they understood what, what the, the, the ramifications of what they were doing and what they had found. And they knew their consciences caught up. And they kind of knew, wait a minute, they got kind of caught up in it. I think they ate, they drank, they were married, they hid stuff. And then they're like, oh, hold on, you know, we need to honor the Lord. And how did they honor the Lord? Here we go. They said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning light. Now, again, this is, this is throughout the day. 
or the, the evening, uh, it, if we're silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will, will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they had a moment of clarity and reason, but they're lepers, so they really can't go tell the king directly. So here's what they do. Look at verse 10. So they came and called to the gatekeepers in the city and told them. So these are the people that they could only go past a certain point. So they talked to the gatekeepers. It says, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, but the, but the horses tied and the donkeys were tied, the tents as they were. Probably, this is probably a little hard to believe for the, for the gatekeeper. Then the gate, gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night. So this does occur in the evening time, right? So the sun's not come up yet. This is kind of basically in the middle of the night. This is occurring. So the king was kind of roused out of bed to, to hear this news because he still got his, um, he, he, he was rising up from his bed. And he said to his servants, here's the interesting part. This is the king. And the king is yet still in denial about something that miraculous might happen. So he's basically saying, um, I don't really buy this. Here's what's going on. It's probably a trap, right? Right, exactly, right. So he's going back to his wisdom militarily to rely on himself. And he says, I'll tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know what we're hungry. They, therefore, they have gone out of the camp and hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we will take them alive and get into the city. I mean, as a military commander and, and, and king, I, I kind of get it. I understand that that probably would have made more sense than a miracle, especially after as frustrated as he was. Let's continue on, though, in 13. And one of the servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses. Apparently, they didn't have much left. And I think they only had two chariot horses, basically. Seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel, again, more sarcasm, who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, because they didn't have enough for, for, for five. Apparently, these were chariots. And the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan. And behold, and this is kind of what we talked about before, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. So just kind of pausing right there, it became clear, it became evident to the king at this point, this is a reality, you know, this really did occur, this isn't a trap, this isn't something. So if you can just kind of walk through that in your head and just imagine all that, um, kind of a, a shock, this is truly a miracle that happened, and the lepers are the one that delivered the good news. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, there's a part about, speaking of the leper part, I just thought it was interesting. I'd kind of forgotten to talk about this a moment ago. But I, there's an interesting quote here and talking about God using the lowly in his plans and the lepers being the lowly in this passage. I thought this was an interesting quote. It was from Jacques Ellul. He's a theologian, uh, a French. He said, here again, this is the part about the, the lepers. He said, here again, we see God's freedom in the choice of means. God chooses some men among others. He associates men secondarily with himself in the doing of his work. But what men? Not the most qualified or the most informed, the most worthy or the most alert, 
we see God chose lepers to discover the miracle, just as it is women coming to the tomb with their own material concerns, which would have been just making the body smell better. They were just coming to do that, who discover a great miracle or the great miracle. The lepers are rejects and they are unclean. I just thought that was an interesting parallel, kind of coming into the season of where we celebrate Christmas and remembering Christmas and then, then what happens at Easter and the resurrection and the fact that God uses who he will. And it's not always, it's not always kings. It's not always, obviously he uses prophets, but it's just the lowly. It's the common everyday people. It's the people that come up to you and you're like, oh, great, here he comes, you know, what's he going to tell me, you know? And then just something comes out of that person that just ministers to your heart. That's why we really always must be very graceful and be full of grace when it comes to people. You know, whether they're believers or not, you never quite know what the Lord has intended for you in that moment. You're going through something and someone comes up and, you know, they just, or they just want to say something, but always be gracious and listen because you just really don't know who the Lord will use and how he'll use that person. You know, it's not always going to be a pastor or an elder or a leader that does the most ministering to you, right? It could be someone from the body. And it might even be someone from the body that just like, you know, drives you a little crazy, you know? But that, that's why we always must be full of grace because we know everybody's going, yeah, I know one person. But we, but, but we always must know that God uses people of all kinds for, to accomplish his will and to comfort us and to do other things. And so I just thought that was an interesting quote, how he sort of paralleled that with, with just the women that were coming to the tomb. Jesus was dead. They watched him die. They were just coming because they couldn't buy the, 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 the frankincense, the, not the frankincense, but the, the, the spices and things that hide the body scent. They couldn't buy it because of the, of the Sabbath. And they were just coming to do that, not even having a clue that Christ had ascended. And I just think that's kind of neat, that parallel there. So, so we kind of get to this, the end of this area, and it's the lepers that were the ones that heralded these, this, this great miracle. So let's pick it up in verse 16. Here's the celebration. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. Plundered in a good way, I think. They had been dominated by this vicious you know, group, of our, this army. So they plundered the camp. So a sea of fine flour, here we go. Here's a fulfilled prophecy number one. Check that off your list. A sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Number one prophecy fulfilled right there. Now the king had appointed the captain. Now this is the captain. I know you're gonna, you're gonna, you know where this is going. This is the captain that said, yeah, right. Like God's going to make a window out of heaven and pour stuff out, sure. And that's when the prophet Elisha said, you'll see it, but you're not going to touch it. Look at verse 17. This is, this is, this is sobering. And the captain on, who, on whose hand he leaned, you know, the, the king, uh, he put him in charge of the gate, okay? And the people trampled him, this is the captain, at the, in the gate so that he died. Let, let, let me read that again. And the people trampled him. This is the captain that didn't believe and trust in God's promises. He was sarcastic about it. Trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God, Elisha, said. 
when the king came down to him. So there's fulfilled prophecy number two, right? The prophecy back here, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse, well, it's the end of verse 2. It says, but he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Not only will you not eat of it, you're dead. You don't mock God or his promises. And this is still a time when God was moving very swiftly uh, through, through people. Um, so the third, the third thing here, and you know, as we, as we kind of move forward with this, it sort of repeats itself. Look at verse 13, or sorry, I'm sorry, verse 18. For when the man of God had said to the king, and this kind of repeats the whole thing, to see as a barley shall be sold, it repeats the actual um, uh, prophecy. So it kind of repeats it again doubly. It was fulfilled. Both prophecies were fulfilled. Make sense? Okay, so, so here's the thing. That's the third point we get to, right? God will always fulfill his word. And that's something that we need to bank on and rely on. What else is there in life you know, that, to, that we can really put our full trust in? It's not the economy, certainly not the government and who's in charge. You know, It's not even man at times. But we know that the word of the Lord, which is the truth of God, these are his promises. They speak to us. And that will always, is always something we can trust and lean on heavily. And will always be fulfilled, right? So I think as, as, you, as you kind of close this chapter down, uh, again, we look at the summary of it. Uh, a couple things of note is that there were two prophecies, and they both were fulfilled. One fulfilled in such a drastic measure, but I think it kind of drives home the understanding that, that God always does fulfill his word. You know, and then looking at trusting in government, this this king is so funny because I always have to look at his name, Je- Jehoram, because I think there were two of them, and so he was obviously so cynical at the end of this in, in chapter six, where where they were selling unclean animal heads for for fortunes, and it's no wonder he was kind of cynical. And then to come into this phase, re- realizing that. The government and his political prowess couldn't do anything, but the word of the Lord will be will, will always hold true. And so I think there's a lesson in there for him, obviously, but um, but I think for us as well. I think I think again, just those three things that I'd like to leave you with um, as we kind of conclude. I want to recap them though, because we saw these things occur tonight. The first one was the necessity of trusting God's promises. We know who didn't trust and what happened to him. Now I don't think something severe. Like that's going to happen to us because we're under a new covenant of grace and, and mercy, but we're, we're also his children, uh, but, and he will discipline us. But I think it really drives home the fact that we do need to always trust his promises because the third point is that they do come true. Uh, we, we need to bank on those and know those things. Also, you know, talking about the lowly, I thought that was just really interesting. And, and, and all throughout scripture, um, what, was the, what was the son of... Of, of uh, it was uh, Jonathan, yeah, Mephibosheth. Remember him, Mephibosheth. Talk about the lowly, you know, the lowly ministering to David and being a part of God's plan. And, and so I just think it's really important to keep in mind, and as we kind of come into this, even this holiday season, that the people we meet with and the people that we interact with, uh, you just never quite know what the Lord is using them for. And so we always need to be gracious and open with that. Um, that, that's pretty much it for the chapter. I don't want to belabor this. Those are the three key points, I think, that come out of this narrative. It's a very interesting narrative, um, but it's really all about 
God's nature, his character, what we can expect from the Lord, what we should, how we should respond to the Lord. And again, I, I, I say that, that this, this, this right here, these are his promises. If you're, if you're down and out and you're coming into a season of maybe grief or there's uh, some things going on in your life that are troubling you, there's no better place to turn to than the word of the Lord, specifically the Psalms. If you need encouragement, go to Psalm 37. There's so much. It's, it's Psalm 37 is a rich, rich text. It talks about, and there's just promise after promise, commit your way to the Lord and he will sustain you. I mean, there's so many things in there that, that you can just bank on. If you're going through a difficult time, and I know that, you know, I, I said this at, when we had the Thanksgiving service, we come into Thanksgiving, we come into the Christmas time, and it's not always roses and peaches and cream. And it's, there's, people go through struggles these times of years, you know. And um, uh, I would just really commend to you the, the Psalms and leaning heavily on Scripture. Uh, you know, there's things going on that I know of many people in the church, and we have prayer re requests that we pray over as elders, and, and uh, things aren't always wonderful as they seem. Um, but, uh, but just know that the word of the Lord will stand. His promises are true, and we need to, we need to kind of make sure that we, we fully rely on him. Amen? That's good? Amen. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that uh, for, for, for your word and, the, and even these narratives, Father, that we find in the Old Testament that speak so truly of your character. We read a text like this, Father, and we, we gain an understanding or at least a reminder, if nothing else, of, of, of your power and your sovereignty, Lord. And what you mean is what you mean. And what you say, Lord, we need to listen to. And Lord, we know that also that we can, from this text, we know that we can trust you. Lord, that we can trust your promises. We can trust that what you say to us from your word is true and right, Lord. Lord, help us as we go through this season, Lord, that we, we will um, acknowledge and reach out perhaps to those who are lowly. Lord, that we, that we keep them in mind, knowing that perhaps uh, you will use them for something in our lives or something that you're doing and some work that you're having, Father. Lord, be with us all tonight as we, as we head home, Father. Keep us safe. For those who are sick that are at home, Lord, we pray for healing on them for rapid healing. Uh, for Pastor Greg, Lord, we pray for, um, for him to uh, recover quickly, Lord. Um, we pray for those who are um, uh, suffering from loneliness right now, Father. We, Lord, we ask that you comfort them and you be near to them, Lord. We pray for uh, this weekend coming up for the service, Lord, and, and for our wonderful time of celebration in the potluck dinner, Lord, that, you, uh, that uh, your glory will shine even through those things, Father. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen.